On the cover flap of Debbie Applegate's 2021 book, Madam, the biography of Polly Adler, icon of the jazz age, is written the following, quote, Simply put, everybody went to Polly's. Polly Adler, who lived 1900 to 1962, was a diminutive dynamo whose Manhattan brothels were more than oasis of illicit sex, where men paid top dollars for the company of her girls, unquote. According to author Debbie Applegate, Polly's pals included Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Frank Sinatra, Desi Arnaz, and Duke Ellington, among many others. Applegate is an Amherst and Yale-educated historian based in New Haven, Connecticut. Debbie Applegate, I heard you recently say, uh, as I was preparing for this interview, again, that I will never write another book. Is that true? Oh, uh, well, in fact, you're calling me in the middle of an existential crisis as I think, what the heck am I going to do with the rest of my life? Uh, The idea of Setting out in the, for one of these long around-the-world voyages that I seem to insist on taking doesn't sound like a very good idea. I'm getting too old to spend uh, a decade or more on a book. Uh, but on the other hand, I think I've unfit myself for other, uh, other careers, so I really am not sure what's going to happen next. When you were sitting around the table talking about a, a book, your husband suggested that you write one on Calvin Coolidge because you were talking about doing one on the— <laughs> Roaring Twenties. Yeah. Was he serious about that? It, he is, and uh, I'll say that is uh, filial uh, affection. We uh, both met uh, when we were students at Amherst College in Western Massachusetts, and uh, Calvin Coolidge uh, is an alumnus of the college, the only president they have, uh, and uh, one who is not uh, perhaps as as uh, warmly remembered as he could be. I, I actually wrote a little piece about Calvin Coolidge for the alumni magazine, and I decided I, we, sh- we should change our mind about him. He is a fascinating, eccentric character, even if he is not perhaps, he's no FDR. <laughs> well, you say in your acknowledgments, um, which I found very interesting, that you stumbled on Polly Adler's 1953 memoir, A House is Not a Home, in the stacks of the Yale Library. Go back to that time, tell us when it was, and... Uh, how did you find it, and what was your immediate reaction? Well, you know, I had I had finished uh, my first book, uh, a biography of a 19th century minister, one of the very first mega church uh, ministers, uh, a guy named Henry Ward Beecher, who uh, is probably now best remembered as the little brother of Harriet, uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin the great abolitionist novel. And, and uh, he uh, was a great character, uh, a similar character to Polly Adler in one sense, a kind of Forrest Gump kind of guy who could uh, open up a lens on the 19th century. But it had taken so long, and it, it's, biography is a crazy genre to be working in. Uh, it, it is always a long endeavor, even when you're doing it at your shortest. And I, as, I, as you say, I'd sworn I wasn't going to do it again. Uh, but then uh, the book went well, <laughs> unexpectedly well, uh, and I think I was feeling flattered. Uh, so I thought, well, let's just think about it, uh, something new. Why I decided to go off in a whole new direction uh, still uh, baffles me. But I was thinking the 20s because the Roaring 20s 
that year and those decades between World War One and World War Two are so critical to understanding where we are as Americans now. And they've got lots of glamour, lots of fun, you know, flappers and bootleggers and all that. So I, I, I was just looking through the books in the stacks of the library on the 20s, and there was this little slim red volume, no real, nothing to distinguish it. Uh, but when I pulled it out, uh, it turned out to be the memoir, 1953 memoir of um, this woman named Polly Adler, who it turned out was once a very, very famous or infamous madam in Jazz Age New York. And uh, this was her autobiography called A House Is Not a Home. Uh, I took it home. It, it, I uh, devoured it in one gulp. It is a fascinating story uh, dealing with her deal, uh, her life as a young girl from the immigrant, uh, dealing with politicians and tastemakers and criminals, uh, and then had something of a happy ending where this book that she published in the 1950s, long after she retired, became a mega bestseller, uh, sold two million copies, uh, was made into a movie with uh, Shelley Winters. No, not, a, not a very good movie, I have to say. Even, even had a song written under the same title, House is Not a Home by Burt Bacharach. Uh, and something about her story just grabbed me. And I thought, well, you know, even if there's not a whole lot more uh, primary sources, this is enough to begin, enough to work with. Uh, and that took me down the rabbit hole because it turned out, in fact, uh, there were many, many more pri uh, primary sources and many more uh, stories than she even hinted at in her book. And then you also mentioned about your former classmate, Rachel Rubin. Explain how she fit into this. Well, I, you know, I am not a superstitious person uh, unless uh, unless the omens seem good. <laughs> the minute the superstitious <laughs> omens seem bad, I'm no longer. I'm all logic after that. Uh, but there was something about this project that seemed to be uh, blessed by the gods. The muses uh, kept throwing little hints in the way, in my way, and one of the first uh, bits of divine encouragement, if you will, uh, was that one of my classmates, uh, who with whom I got my PhD at Yale, uh, had just recently published, uh, a reissued a copy of an edition of How House Is Not a Home with a lovely introduction that she'd written, and her first her first generous impulse which I could not be more grateful for, was to hand me a stack of photocopied news articles. Now, this was back in the uh, mid to late to 2007, 2008, when photocopies still mattered, uh, when not everything was digitized. Uh, and I would have had to go back and laboriously look through all the microfilm, and so that was my first big, my first big uh, land uh, of landing of the fish was look at this. I've got I've got obscure newspaper articles. Nothing makes a biographer or a historian more excited <laughs> than a stack of obscure newspaper articles. Uh, but very quickly, more uh, good omens, more good uh, gifts started to appear. Um, it turned out that Polly Adler had. Uh, she really wanted to be remembered. She wanted to be respectable. She wanted to be a somebody, a mensch. Uh, and uh, she had kept stacks of old newspapers, clippings and programs and memorabilia, reel-to-reel um, -reel tapes that she'd made, reminiscing about uh, when she was writing her memoir, all sorts of things that, of course, would make a historian's heart leap. 
sadly, her brother, her last surviving brother, was very ashamed of her, and he inherited all of this stuff, and in his shame about her profession, uh, threw away most of it. Uh, but there were some. There was quite a bit. There were photos and, and, and enough to work from. So that was the next thing. Then... Uh, it turned out I got a, I found an email or I found a note on online uh, by this fellow who was a demolition guy in Nebraska. And he had discovered in the course of his work, a suitcase. And in this suitcase, it was filled with all the writing notes and correspondence of Polly Adler's ghostwriter with whom she'd been working on this, uh, uh, her memoir. And it had the real names. It had a lot of the names that had to be cut out and the things that had to be changed and, uh, in her memoir, which, of course, were plenty since much of her activity was illegal. Uh, and between those three things, I was off to the races. Uh, there were more, more gifts, more gifts from the gods, but those three anchors made all the difference. I don't want to go through the chronology of everything right now. We can come back to it. But give us a, you know, a minute or two of the basics about who Polly Adler was. Well, in some ways, she was a classic immigrant story from the 20th century. She was born around 1900. She was never quite sure exactly. Uh, she was born in the Pale of Russia, uh, in an area that is now uh, Belarus, that was known as White Russia at the time, uh, and it was all under uh, the Russian Empire. Uh, and it was, the, and she was, uh, it was a Jewish uh, shtetl, as they called it, and that was where she was born. Uh, but things were getting increasingly tough, uh, poverty, uh, anti-Semitism were beginning to really squeeze the town. And her father decides when Polly is about the age of 13 that they are going to all immigrate to the golden land of the United States. Uh, unfortunately, they cannot afford to go all at the same time. It costs quite a lot of money. Uh, so he arranges for his old this child, Polly, to go first, and they are going to follow in installments. She's going to help earn money, send back, and bring them over. And this is pretty common, uh, not, at all, not at all an uncommon thing, especially in the Jewish community where girls were so uh, handy and so skillful and often uh, even better than boys at handling the world outside. Uh, the trouble is, Six months after she arrives in the United States, World War I arrives, shuts off all travel, all communication with Russia, and she is effectively stranded here in the United States living among strangers. Uh, and it's at this point uh, that her, her immigrant story starts to diverge from the standard path, and she has to decide how she's going to survive. Uh, she moves to New York uh, and uh, uh, eventually, within a couple years, realizes that making $5 a week uh, working in a garment factory uh, is not even going to pay, is barely going to pay enough for her to live. Uh, and then she starts to look around. She has no parents. She has very little supervision, very little home life. She, uh, she gets involved with the dance halls and the, the street life and other teenagers running wild in the ragtime era. Uh, in some ways, you know, the primrose path is not hard to get on. And she realizes she can make three to four to five times as much money uh, basically turning tricks. Uh, men are willing to pay much more for her body than for her brain, she realizes. So by the time she's 20, 
she has opened her own brothel. She she went very quickly from uh, labor to management, uh, as we would say, uh, and opening her brothel uh, with the opening of prohibition turned out to be the big fortuitous choice in her life. Um, within a couple of years, she has become the main um, entertainment uh, venue for many of the up-and-coming bootleggers in New York, uh, names that would become famous like Meyer Lansky, um, uh, Lucky Luciano, Bugsy Siegel. Uh, she entertains Al Capone and all the big names. Uh, and that leads her very quickly to the culture makers, um, the writers like the Algonquin Roundtable become some of her biggest advocates, uh, people in the entertainment business and advertising. And by the peak of prohibition, by the when the 20s are really roaring, she has become something of a salon, if you will, a kind of late night body salon with booze and girls and gambling for a lot of the big uh, tastemakers and shakers and movers in the United States, in, in New York and, and thus in the United States, because she becomes a bit of a tourist spot. When people come to town, they want to be taken to Polly's. Uh, of course, that can't last forever. The 30s come. Uh, the 30s are tougher. Uh, and, but, but she lasts. She lasts until 1945 uh, when she finally decides she's too old for the business She's got plenty of money, and she retires to California. Live 1900 and 1962, as you say. Um, <clears throat> I want to do something that for people that have never been to New York City, because if you read your okay. book and you don't understand New York City, um, you're, you're, uh, you need a map in front of you. As a matter of fact, as a... <laughs> As they listen to this, they might benefit by having a map of New York City in front of them. And I, I want you to see if you can – let's pretend that we're standing on 59th Street right at the base of uh, Central Park facing north. On your right-hand side is east side. On your left-hand side is the west side. Kind of describe the basically where everything is – in your book, for instance, the Brooklyn, the Queens, the Riverside Drive, the tenant uh, area, tenement area, and things like that, so people can get a sense of what New York City would be like in those days. The 1920s were the time when New York became the most powerful city in the nation and the most powerful city uh, on earth uh, for a time. And so when she first arrives, she goes out to what was then uh, a Jewish ghetto out in the far reaches of Brooklyn, Brownsville, Brooklyn. And that's where she discovers to hell with poverty. I don't, I don't need any more of this. If, if being respectable means I have to stay here in this ghetto, uh, then I'm not, I don't care about respectability. So she takes the train across Brooklyn, uh, which is a big, massive borough, uh, to, to Manhattan, which is uh, really, uh, despite being one of the biggest, greatest cities in the country, is actually in many ways a very small place, uh, just a little island. Um, she first begins down at the Lower East Side, which is not a whole lot better than Brownsville, Brooklyn. It's uh, a place filled with crime. It is now remembered, of course, as a place where many Jews and Irish uh, began their start as immigrant families and moved up and out. And in that sense, she followed that, that path. She begins her life in crime down on the Lower East Side, uh, but she quickly, as she as she gets a little more money, she moves up to what they called 
all right next row, which is going up on the west side of uh, Central Park, as you say. Uh, up, uh, her first brother was actually right next to Columbia University, which I ble- believe was a, a wise choice. Lots of rich pickings uh, there, uh, and she uh, and that's become that's a place where the people who had made some money uh, in down wherever they first immigrated to were beginning to move up there, almost as if they were like an airy sort of suburb because the streets were cleaner, the buildings were newer, uh, and it was a great place to start off her career. Uh, But as she gets uh, a little more fame, a little more notoriety, as her ambitions grow, she realizes that the real action is happening in midtown Manhattan. And that is uh, right underneath Central Park. It is, at that time, the center of business in the world. It's right next to Grand Central's train station, uh, Penn Station. So you've got uh, people from all over the country coming into New York uh, and staying in these hotels, doing business. Uh, and you've also got, it's also the center of entertainment, the, the wine, women, and song racket. That's where all of the, all of the great speakeasies are. Uh, it's where all the big nightclubs, the illegal nightclubs that the bootleggers are setting up. Uh, it is in many ways the center, the heart of New York City. And that's where she really makes her fame is, uh, in the center of the city in Midtown. Uh, but of course, as things go along, Crime also begins, you know, it's a, it's a time where criminals are um, kind of chic. There's nothing like uh, making booze illegal to all of a sudden give it a certain kind of cultural cachet. Now, all of a sudden, you're, it seems glamorous to sit next to a bootlegger because they're the ones who uh, buy, supplied the booze. Uh, and she benefits from that. But as the Depression hits... A lot of uh, a lot of the glamour of the criminal world disappears as the economy goes downhill, as liquor becomes uh, legal again in 1933. So she uh, has to move over to the Upper East Side, which uh, would shock people who know New York because the Upper East Side uh, is to this day still a bastion of respectable wealth. Uh, it was very waspy then, filled with Protestants uh, and uh, somewhat snobbish. I mean, perhaps perhaps even still, uh, but that's what her finer clientele, including Jock Whitney of the Whitney and uh, uh, Fortune, uh, he is one of her close friends and one of her best clients, and he says, look, if you don't move someplace safer, uh, I can't keep coming here because uh, the kidnapping has just gotten too much, and I am a prime person to be kidnapped. Uh, so she ends her career mostly over in the respectable east side, although even there she has her problems. Uh, the, the Stork Club, which was the hot spot of cafe society, uh, once kicks her out, uh, so th- uh, not just kicks her out of the club, which she finds humiliating, but uh, the proprietor, Sherman Billingsley, actually, when he orders her to leave and she will not leave with her girls, he actually uh, ha- brings waiters over, tells them to remove the table in front of her because he will not have a whore in his uh, establishment, which, of course, was, uh, I probably shouldn't cast aspersions, but I will, which was, of course, ridiculous rank hypocrisy since the Star Club was filled with uh, ladies of the evening who just passed as respectable people. To review uh, a couple of things, you talk about prohibition, 1920, 18th Amendment, 1933, 21st Amendment when they repealed it. So 
she was most was she most active during the time of prohibition she was she had quite actually what's interesting is she felt like her the great years of when the town was running wide open in the 20s when Jimmy Walker, the, the jazz mayor, as they called him, was uh, in charge, were in many ways her best years because, uh, as I say, the criminals had a kind of chic uh, cachet and she didn't get – she had to pay out tons in bribes. But uh, she was not molested, really. She was arrested, uh, and certainly things were tough. Uh, there's nothing like having gangsters as, you know, as your primary clients to have plenty of run-ins with both the law and uh, the underworld. Uh, it was a very dangerous business to begin with and made more dangerous by having a bunch of coked up uh, gun toters uh, in your in, in your midst. Uh, but in fact, as she herself says, the 30s were harder. Uh, but in fact, there was still plenty of money around if you knew where to find it. And New York City was becoming this very international city because of the lead up of World War II. There were plenty of uh, people coming in from Europe who had plenty of money to spend. Uh, and that's the sort of the hot years for what used to be called cafe society when the big nightclubs were the Stork Club and the El Morocco. And, and she was and the 21 Club and she was essentially the house madam for all the hot not nightclubs, you would call her. If, if somebody wanted something more than a good dinner and some booze, uh, the head waiter might give you her phone number. Uh, or she would bring her girls to the nightclubs and use them as advertisement, and you might follow her home. So she, her 30s, in many ways, she was just as popular, and she was making as almost as much money. Uh, but it just got harder. It's it's not especially it's a young it's a young woman's game uh, at its best. And I think she was getting older. I think she was the 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 abuse adds up. Um, so even though those were not her favorite years, in many ways she was uh, probably more famous worldwide during the 30s than she was in the 20s. Going back to to New York, if you were down in the Lower East Side. Your Brooklyn is over to your right across the yep. river. Queens above them over to your right on the east side. And then on the left side would be Hudson River. And it uh, would include uh, other places that I want to ask you just to give us a definition. What would be the Tenderloin District? And what is what does that mean? It's funny. The Tenderloin, that's uh, it, it, an old word it's said to come from a, a cop slang which is uh one of one of the things that might shock people reading this book uh certainly there were times when i was shocked was the level of police corruption that existed uh in those decades especially if you were in the vice squad uh, and there's there's still some of that today in vice squads. Um, and so uh, it, the tenderloin was where the bribes were best. So a cop who was being transferred from walking a, a respectable beat somewhere in a quiet neighborhood, if they got uh, transferred to, say, the areas around Times Square um, or the areas where Tin Pan Alley uh, was, which was um, where all the music, uh, the music saloons and the music publishers uh, were clustered around in the in the 30s, just below Times Square. Um, uh, those places, the cops would say, I, I, "I've got transferred. We're not. We're not having Chuck Steak." 
uh, anymore. It's all going to be tenderloin out from here because the bribes were so much uh, thicker and more profitable. Um, and one of the things is I, I realized is there is a specific place that Times Square and below that in the 30s and going along Broadway, the Great White Way, as they called it, because it had so many electric lights so early on, um, were the, any place where you had a lot of saloons and you had a lot of brothels, uh, would be one of those kind of red light districts. But it turns out, yes, there was a main tenderloin under uh, around Times Square, but there were little pockets like that throughout uh, New York City. And in fact, up until World War One, most towns, even small towns, had districts, red light districts, where uh, the the so the worst of the saloons, the worst of the musicals, and of course the brothels would all be clustered around certain areas, uh, and those were pretty much, even if they weren't exactly legal, they were tolerated because there was a real belief that there were good women and there were bad women, and it's best we're going to have to have some bad women anyway. Let's all know where they are. Let's keep them all in their district. Everyone, if you want to go there, you can, but but then they won't be spread throughout the city, uh, infecting the rest of us, I guess, was sort of the idea. Um, World War I changes that because you've got all these young boys in uniform who are going to France or going to training camps, and they are coming back with all kinds of sexually transmitted diseases because this is their their first foray out into the world to dealing with prostitutes and, and looser young women. And the army is so worried uh, that they are going to lose more soldiers to syphilis or to gonorrhea than they are to bullets, that they uh, it basically closed down, issued national regulations to close down all the red light districts in the country. And uh, that that is, like prohibition, uh, one of the great accomplishments of the 20th century. We no longer have wide open vice districts. It did not succeed entirely. We still have prostitution, just like uh, we still have liquor. Uh, but it definitely cut down on the number of these kind of tenderloin districts and cut down, of course, on police corruption for that reason. Where is Hell's Kitchen in Manhattan and, and how does that relate in your story? Yeah, so Hell's Kitchen is sort of the prime tenderloin. That is the 30s, uh, the blocks uh, below Times Square. Times Square is from 42nd to 49th on Broadway, going up along the crooked little street of Broadway. If you just keep going south, uh, yeah, the lower 40s, uh, they used to call them the roaring 40s, uh, and the 30s, uh, and the 20s, uh, going further south on the west side, are it's what they call still Hell's Kitchen, although nobody finds that uh, name as appropriate as they used to. Uh, it was a, it was actually a primarily Irish area, Irish and African American, uh, and but eventually, and it's still got a little bit of an Irish flavor. And if you go there to this day, it is. Uh, not not as by any means as rough as it was. Nothing in New York City is as rough as it was, but it's still got still you can see the old tenements and you can see the little Irish bars and uh, that's where many of the great Irish criminals uh, in uh, New York history came from. How many different places? The Jewish criminals came from the Lower East Side. <laughs> the Irish came from the West Side. How many different places did Polly Adler live in while she was alive in New York City? Well, that is a question I honestly cannot answer. Uh, in fact, when I was looking at her um, ghostwriter, a woman named, brilliant woman named Virginia Faulkner, 
Uh, and uh, she is writing to the editor of the book of Polly's House is Not a Home. And she says, I literally cannot tell how many places she lived. I have addresses. I have at least 25 addresses or more. And she says she herself cannot remember all the places she had apartments. And uh, and that's because uh, a couple reasons. Um, one is that she had to always be on the run from cops or from uh, stick up men who, you know, when you, when you work outside the law, you cannot always turn to the law in, if you're being robbed. Uh, so she had to always be a little bit one step ahead of the people who were trying to either shut her down or take her money. Um, or sometimes you'd, she'd just run into problems. The neighbors would start to complain or uh, the superintendent didn't want to take her bribes anymore or she caused a, some of her clients would cause a fuss and make a noise and she had to shut down and move along. Uh, but the other reason is uh, once you shut down these tenderloin districts, uh, these brothel districts, before you could kind of have an, a wide open brothel, they would, the old brothels in New York City uh, before Polly's time used to actually have advertisements uh, that they would put up on the windows of their brownstones or they would have guidebooks. Uh, that gentlemen's guidebooks, as they were called, that would list the addresses. Well, you know, once there's a crackdown, that's no longer okay. So they move into these big apartment buildings. So Polly likes to live in big, anonymous apartment buildings that are the new thing in New York because you can't see. You can't see it. You can't know exactly who's living in those buildings. And But that means also that the uh, the brothels are smaller. You can't. You don't have a whole house to have ten women living in. So she had. Um, she would have a main brothel or a couple main places where she would have gambling rooms and a bar, and you could kind of, as she liked to call it, it was like a speakeasy with a harem that you could drop by and have a drink. And even if you didn't want to sleep with one of her girls, you might chat with Polly and have a snack and a couple of overpriced cocktails or, or play cards. Uh, but she also had to have plenty of space for um, what they we now call call girls. She worked by telephone. So sometimes you might go to her house, but other times, if you were a man who wanted to, one of a, to go on a date with one of her ladies, you would call up and she would either send somebody to you, call up one of the girls in her big book, uh, her directory of women who worked for her, and she would either send the girl to go to go to your place or she had a whole set of apartments scattered across the, the city that you could meet up with uh, your date in one of her apartments. So she herself, uh, she could never say how many places she lived in, nor could she say how many times she had been arrested. We know at least 15 times she was arrested, uh, but she, it had to be countless more. Even she and the cops agree it was many more. They just can't figure out how many. How many times did she go to jail? Ah, only one time. She was a she was a clever woman, and she was especially popular with the cops. That was one of her big innovations. Was she said, you know, I don't want to pay off after I've been arrested. I'm going to make myself a home away from home for all the vice cops in the city who would get in the habit of stopping by whenever they wanted to drink or roll in the hay for free or or they wanted to pick up a little extra bribe. So as she said, she got very adept at the uh, the hundred dollar handshake, putting a putting a C note in her palm and just going around shaking uh, the various cops' hands. And that 
that helped a lot. You'd be amazed how much paying people off ahead of time keeps you from being the one pinched at the end of the month. But, uh, you know, you, if you work constantly in the underworld, you will be arrested. So she was, uh, but only one time, only one time did she ever make it to jail. And that was in 1935. Uh, she only went for a month with five days off for good behavior. Uh, but the real reason, I think, it's, it's, it's not entirely clear, but it looks like the reason this time she went down, finally, was because she, one of her most famous clients who spent a lot of time hiding out in her apartments was a major gangster named Dutch Schultz, uh, often nicknamed the Beer Baron of the Bronx. Uh, and he had become, he had risen to becoming one of the most powerful criminals in the country. And uh, now the, the feds and the city were trying to take him down. And I think she sort of got caught up in the web of trying to take him down. And she was going to be a pawn to try to do that. Uh, it, it did not work, actually. Uh, in the end, her good friend, Lucky Luciano, uh, intervened for her. That's why she was only there for a month. Uh, and she keeps her mouth shut. That was one of the secrets to her success. She was very discreet, very good at keeping her mouth shut. Uh, and in the end, uh, they, it wasn't New York City who got Dutch Schultz. It wasn't the feds who got Dutch Schultz. Uh, it was uh, it was one of his fellow gangsters, a set of fellow gangsters who got sick of uh, taking orders from him and killed him famously in a saloon in New Jersey. What would be the differences uh, if you read A House Is Not a Home compared to what you have in your book? Oh, well, first of all, let me say A House Is Not a Home is a great read. So uh, well worth the pleasure of, of picking it up. And as I say, shorter and slimmer. Um, the difference is, you know, she was very, as I say, very discreet. So she names very few people. You have to already be dead and you're probably a gangster because she's more comfortable. But on the other hand, uh, when I looked at uh, the um, the notes from her uh, ghostwriter, there's a list in the back of the ghostwriter's notebook that says people not to be named. Well, that list has about 20 of the single most famous notorious gangsters in the country on it. And this happens to be right around the Kefauver hearings in 1950-51. Uh, so she clearly doesn't mention anyone who she might get in trouble uh, alive. So it's one thing. So she, it, one of the biggest differences is uh, real names uh, and the real details, even her own family. She doesn't speak much about. Um, and some of those names and details really matter. Um, for example, uh, the biggest surprise that I had, uh, I knew that she dealt with a lot of politicians. Politicians were some of her best customers. I knew that uh, her house was a place where gangsters and politicians liked to meet because they could do business away from prying eyes, um, and it was very safe. But the big shock uh, was when speaking to one of her friends, she, he was in, when I spoke to him, he was in his, his 80s, a man who had known Polly when he was just in his 20s and Polly was near the end of her life. Um, she was already sick with lung cancer, the lung cancer that would kill her in 1963, um, uh, 62, excuse me. Um, and he, uh, he just out of the blue told me, you know, uh, near the end of her life, she mentioned 
that FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, President Roosevelt, uh, the saint of the Democrats, uh, practically, uh, that he had been one of her customers, that she had provided women for him. And it was before he became president. Uh, it's not exactly clear if it was when he was governor or I, th- I think uh, a little bit before he became governor. Um, and that not just that he had uh, been a customer of hers, but that her discretion, her willingness to keep that a secret when he ran for president, um, had been paid back handsomely that she was to the end of her life receiving payments, regular payments from prominent Democrats to keep her mouth shut. Um, <laughs> as you can imagine, that one was a big shock. I spent that probably added a whole extra year of me researching, trying to figure out if I could uh, actually pin that down and find out if it was true. Um, I was never able to confirm it as factually true. However, um, it is possible. And not only that, it is um, somewhat likely uh, that there's there's a lot of good reason to think that 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 would be true. And there's no reason to think that she would just lie out of uh, out of the blue. Uh, And that's, of course, where being a biographer uh, is a little uh, less savory. Uh, We are, uh, by profession, peeping Toms. So I spent a lot of time looking at, uh, you know, FDR's sexual habits. Could he have sex? What does his doctor say? What um, turns out he loved stag parties. Even in the White House, he, every year for his birthday, he threw a full stag party with all of the trimmings. Uh, and uh, it turns out he, he could indeed have sex, uh, as his doctor said, uh, in the French manner, as they as they put it then. Uh, so, uh, you know, that there were many stories like that that don't appear in her book, as you can imagine. FDR was assistant secretary of the Navy between 1913 and 1920. And then there was a gap of nine years before he became governor, 1929 to 1932, before obviously became president. So there was that nine year gap where she was very active. Uh, in, yes, uh, my guess. And this is this is really speculation informed speculation, but it is speculation, is that I know that he, for the first, after he is first paralyzed, uh, that they, he is basically in seclusion trying to, trying to get his health back and trying to get the use of his legs back. Um, he begins to make a comeback in 1924 when Al Smith runs, uh, president, uh, but he is still not very much in the New York scene. My guess is that around the time that that he that uh, Al Smith is going to run again in 1928 for the presidency, and he desperately wants uh, FDR to run for governor of New York because he needs to have New York in his pocket, uh, and he needs to have if he doesn't have New York, he has no chance of winning the nomination for the presidency from the Democrats. Um, so. They bring he manages to convince uh, FDR to to leave his hot springs, to leave the warm springs where he is in Georgia and to come back up to the to New York and run for governor Um, here at this point. Up until now, Roosevelt has been, you know, the Hudson Valley aristocrat. He's not part of the ethnic mix of New York City politics. He's sort of aloof. He's a Harvard man. He's a wasp, a, a high Protestant. Um, but he has started to be taken up 
by the crowd of politicians, uh, the Tammany Hall crowd that runs with Polly's group. So he begins to be, he has people like Jack Dempsey, who Polly knew very well, um, come out and endorse him. Jack Dempsey's former trainer, Teddy Hayes, becomes uh, FDR's masseuse. Uh, during that period of time while he's trying to figure out if he can get his use of his legs back to run for governor. And I believe that uh, this this fella, Teddy Hayes, who had been a big boxing promoter uh, and and trainer, uh, a big political go-between, very much part of that Tammany Hall sporting, gambling, uh, bootlegger crowd, and a very good customer of Polly's, who she knew very well. I think he was liaison, if it's true, if it's true, um, because uh, he's able, he would be able to say, I can, I can get you somebody discreetly who can come see you at the Biltmore Hotel. Um, and at the same time, this is an unfortunate fact, but one of the ways that prostitutes serve the underworld and serve less savory causes is they become their own subtle form of blackmail. So many of people's, many of Polly's people were very deeply, as I say, a lot of the gangsters were very deeply involved in uh, democratic politics and Republican politics, actually. Uh, And so it is quite likely that they might well have said, let's, let's, let's facilitate uh, Roosevelt having a couple encounters with some of Polly's women because that's its own subtle form of blackmail. They have something on him, whether he knows it or not, uh, they have something on him. And that that's true in business. Uh, that's true in not just in politics. It's true in all kinds of places that if you, uh, it's called the pa- the power of shared transgression, that if you have Two men have gone and done something uh, illegal together or just immoral together, something that they are forbidden to do. It often will create a little bond, especially if you get away with it. And I think that's a lot of the times when people were hiring poly girls for official purposes. That's what they're trying to do. They're, They're doing the equivalent of all going to a strip club after a business meeting to bond together and and in if the bonds don't work just for friendship then you know you have a little something to hold over your customer or your client or your new friend and so that's my guess how how it would have worked it is also said uh and this with much more authority um that huey long was a customer of polly's uh and there's some reason to think that uh, some of Huey Long's decisions as it came down to supporting Roosevelt uh, for the nomination for the presidency uh, might also have been in relationship to the gangsters uh, who uh, circulated in Polly's world. And it is known for sure that uh, Huey Long liked to go to Polly's house when he was in the Senate. You have said the reason to write a book is research. Explain. That's that's the fun part. That's that's the that's the Sherlock Holmes part. That's the you know the pleasure of having a hunch and following it out and poking around in other people's old letters and uh, you know as I say you get you get some of the pleasures of the peeping tom uh, here and that's one of the reasons I like 
to work uh, with dead people because uh, it's harder to do the research because dead people don't give up their secrets as easily and you can't ask them direct questions. But on the other hand, I think it eases my conscience a little bit that I am not invading the privacy of real live living people uh, and I'm not going to hurt anybody's feelings. I step on anybody's toes. Uh, So that's the thing. If I were going to write another book, that's the part that I like. The writing part, that's just the price you have to pay for spending all those all those hours in the archives and reading old newspapers, looking at other people's diaries. How many different physical places uh, did you go to during your research to get a, an idea of what this woman was like? That's that's a really interesting question because with my first book, uh, it, the Beechers. Uh, were a very prominent 19th century family, and they spent most of their years in New England and Brooklyn Heights, which is a very with the very first historic district, National Historic District in the country. So the places that he lived were pretty well preserved. You can go up to Litchfield, where he was born in Connecticut, or you can go to Brooklyn Heights, where his church still stands and is very active. You can see where he lived, and you can see the spaces where he spent time. Um, With Polly, uh, most of those places uh, don't look the same. You know, New York City just grows and grows and changes and changes, uh, never sits still. Um, So, in fact... Her brothel, her main brothel on West 54th Street, a couple blocks south of uh, Central Park, stood uh, up until this summer. That was one of the few places I could go to and point to and say, look at this building. This is where she spent most of her the 20s, uh, where so many people did. You would never know. It was just a nondescript little building. Uh, and I went there uh, this in uh, August to take a reporter there uh, for New York Magazine, and it had just been knocked down because uh, New York is always changing. So I did a lot more sitting and reading newspapers and reading old magazines. I read tabloids. I was never a fan of the tabloid newspaper, but now I am. Boy, they get in all kinds of gossip. They say all the things that people won't say in the respectable newspapers. Uh, so this was, a, this was a work as much of my historical imagination, trying to imagine what it was like to be in these old spaces as it was to actually get to see it. You talk about there is a difference between an academic book and a um, popular history book. Tell us what that is. Well, you, my sentences should be shorter. I'll say that. I'm hoping, <laughs> you know, your your words don't need to all be 50-cent words and your sentences don't all need to be three clauses too long. So that, that's one thing. Some of it is just presentation. Um, some of it is, you know, you have to be, it's a matter of emphasis. So if it were really, um, if I were really going to be writing this for an academic audience, my footnotes would have been quite elaborate. As it is, I have a hundred pages of footnotes and bibliography because I felt, I felt very strongly that there's a lot of myth making about the Roaring Twenties and the Jazz Age, and there's a lot of myth spinning uh, about uh, about gangsters and flappers, uh, and there's a lot of lie telling in Polly's world. And Polly is not the biggest liar of of them all by any means. Um, that's that's one of the things that I came to realize is we have kind of one of the things I feel very strongly about is that we have a tendency to treat 
well, for example, people involved in the sex trades as if somehow they are less likely to tell the truth than the men who go spend time with the women in the sex trades. When in fact, it's quite the opposite. Uh, the people who uh, have the most to lose are usually the ones who are most willing to lie. Uh, all, she entertains some of the biggest businessmen in the country, and you'd, you'd have a, be hard-pressed to find any one of them telling the truth uh, about their experiences. Um, so so a big part of it is not that, not that different, because I tried very hard to get to the original sources to distinguish truth from, from fanciful storytelling, uh, and I did my best to document it, but I tried to make it more entertaining. And, try, and in fact, that's one of the reasons to write a biography, because biographies are about characters that let you see the person going through history, see the person living in their time and place uh, and in a way that maybe a regular history book would be a little drier. Uh, it wouldn't be as personal. You're not seeing the world through somebody's eyes. You're just seeing the world through me as the omniscient narrator. Uh, so that was part of the pleasure, was seeing the 20th century through Polly's eyes. What would she look like if you were seeing her in person? How tall was she? How much did she weigh? Was she, in your opinion, attractive? Well, you know, you've, you've hit on something that she herself commented on a number of times. Uh, she's tiny, like many immigrants to the United States from poorer countries at that time. Uh, she was she was four twelve at the four eleven. I mean, barely five feet. Uh, if she had heels on, she might be a little tiny bit over five feet. Uh, all everyone was much shorter uh, in in those days, uh, and uh, and she was very cute, especially as a younger person. Uh, little Cupid doll face. Uh, uh, you might easily mistake her for somebody who was not uh, as formidable as she was until she talked. Uh, and she had a very deep foghorn voice. Uh, and she could swear when she when she wanted to, when she had a bit of a temper, when when she let it go. So that uh, she, she was very demure looking. She made she designed her own clothes. She dressed very respectably, uh, although she did have a little bit of a weakness for mink coats and for flashy jewelry. Uh, so you wouldn't necessarily know that she was uh, a madam or a woman of the night um, uh, until she talked. And then she had a fairly thick. Uh, what she called the Delancey Street uh, accent from from the Lower East Side, uh, kind of a mix of Jewish, uh, Yiddish uh, accent, uh, kind of Broadway um, lingo like you might hear in Damon Runyon, uh, and uh, and you know pop culture. Uh, and in fact, she was quite cute and quite beloved. People really loved her, but she didn't age so well. And as she herself said, uh, you know, I, I couldn't, I had to be a madam. I couldn't be a hustler, uh, meaning um, a prostitute, because I wasn't pretty enough. And uh, that may be true. Uh, certainly it's a, it's a job. Prostitution is a job for the young and the attractive. That's where the money lies. It's not a good, <laughs> most people uh, their good years of earning are only about five. If, if you stay in the business for 10, that's a long time and, and uh, you're not going to be better for it. Uh, and But the other thing is was she was smart and she could see that the, the world was kinder on the people who were in charge than the people, the, the management. Always better to be management, I think, was her decision there. Had she ever married? 
She did not. And in fact, uh, her love life was, I think, a, a source of great disappointment and pain to her. Um, she had some, she certainly had boyfriends. Um, her turning point, the way she tells it, uh, between her respectable life and her path down down to sin, I guess we could say, uh, to vice and, and law-breaking, was when she was 17, she fell in love with her boss at the garment factory where she sewed corsets. And, uh, and he seemed to be interested in her. She thought it was, you know, they were going to have an affair. Well, he ends up taking her out to Coney Island and, and raping her. She gets pregnant. He refuses to marry her. Uh, she he refuses to help pay for an abortion, which is pretty common. Then they're all they're all illegal, but they they are quite existent. Uh, so she needs to scrape up enough money to, to have an abortion, uh, and she gets kicked out of her parents' ho- or her or her cousin's home. Her parents still are not there. She's living with cousins in in Brooklyn. Uh, and the way to make money fast, uh, she starts to realize is to turn tricks. And she can make, you know, so much more money. And I think the thing that she starts to realize is why would I go back? Why would I go back to being square? Why would I go back to the respectable world when so far the respectable world has done nothing for me and would just be as happy to see me starve? Uh, And it starts to look, I think, for a lot of people who choose choose the sex trades. Not everyone chooses to be uh, participate. There's plenty of plenty of uh, coercion and there's plenty of terrible um, pressure to be in the sex trades. But there are also women who decide that this is the path that makes the most sense to them, whether it's a good path or not, whether it's the path they would have chosen or not, they decide this is the best path they have, the best option they have in front of them. And it's at that point where Polly realizes there is nothing for me here in the respectable world. I might as well make as much money as I can and maybe I can buy some respectability. As I read your book, I kept writing names down, <clears throat> and I want to read the list of them. Uh, I, I'm gonna. Uh, you can inter- interrupt and say if she did not provide uh, women to these men, but the list is extraordinary, and I didn't even get to all of them. Uh, George, <laughs> George S. Kaufman, Dorothy Parker. Of course, she wasn't there for uh, the. No, uh, no, I don't believe so. She was just there for the drinking and the hanging out. Desi Arnaz, Robert Benchley, Mayor Jimmy Walker, Jack Dempsey, policemen, many policemen, Walter Crichton, well, Walter, Walter Winchell, uh, the Marx yeah. Brothers, Milton Berle, Joe DiMaggio, you mentioned Frank Sinatra, Lucky Luciano, Al Capone, Dutch Schultz, Bugsy Siegel, Frank Costello, Legs Diamond, Arnold Rothstein, Oni Madden, Bill Dwyer, George McManus, Jimmy Hines, Charles Murphy. Who did I leave out? Well, Winthrop Rockefeller, um, she entertained many of the Vanderbilt boys who were known to be quite um, quite racy in their tastes. Um, she, Jock, as I was saying, Jock John Hay Whitney, who was one of the world's wealthiest men at the time, uh, and uh, as much as we have uh, to being an American aristocrat, was one of her regular clients. Many newspaper men um, who went on to become screenwriters, uh, uh, who helped create the um, the gangster genre and the uh, screwball comedy genre of the 1930s and 40s? Uh, got their got, got kind of got the DNA of American Hollywood while hanging out in Polly's parlor um, 
you know, there are so many more people. Uh, she said, for one thing, her the advertising industry was one of her biggest uh, biggest set of clients, as you can imagine. If you have watched Mad Men, that was a tame version. So she always she mentions quietly in some of her correspondence that the legendary ad firm uh, BBDNO uh, was uh, her biggest corporate client. Um, there, I mean, you name it, the Madison Square Garden crowd, the boxing crowd was huge. There was probably not a boxer in the firmament of the 30s uh, who did not come to her house. Um, it, too many, that, that, I mean, I could have I spent years just going on looking for more names. Um, I tried to be not discreet, how would I say? I tried to be very um, clear. I was not going to put people in her house unless I knew for sure that they had been to her house or been her clients. But there are many people that she knew. And here's a, here's a late-breaking uh, item. Um, just last week, just before Christmas, I got an email from someone who said, I heard about your book uh, about Polly Adler. I have an early manuscript of Polly Adler's memoir, um, that has notes scrawled all over it, and it's clearly been edited, or it's meant to be edited, and there's all kind of editing notes in it uh, from other people. Um, it was given to my parents by Polly herself because uh, we knew the family, uh, and I, I got on the phone with him saying, well, this is, of course, something you can imagine in my research. I knew there were earlier manuscripts of her, um, of her memoir. I knew it because I could see the correspondence with her publisher and her editor and her agent. Um, but I didn't think it still existed. It, I have not yet seen it, but it seems to me that this is going to be a manuscript that has a whole bunch of things that were cut out. So, for example, when Polly is trying to get permission to... Uh, use people's names in the book, people like James Thurber, the humorist, or Walter Winchell, all say, uh, no thanks. You know, it, it was one thing to be your friend and to be your client, but no, I don't need you listing my name in your book. So I, um, people like uh, Dorothy L'Amour, the actress, um, worked for Polly. Um, I think a lot of those names are going to be in this manuscript, and I just haven't seen it yet. I think it's coming next week. Uh, so uh, if, it, if it's something big, trust me, we'll all hear more about it, uh, even if I can't, even if it's too late to be put in the book. We're going to wrap it up, but before we do that, uh, I want to ask you about one other major story in your book. Judge Seabury, Mayor Jimmy Walker, who was mayor of New York City, 1926 to 32, and FDR, who was governor during part of that time. Explain the Seabury Commission. Well, you know, of course, as I was saying, um, corruption was pretty high in general in New York City. Um, it was just taken for granted that there would be a certain amount of corruption. Uh, that's just the way politics worked back then. Um, uh, pay for play. Uh, but that, and that grows tremendously during the prohibition years because you've got all this criminal money due to the illegal liquor trade. Uh, so the corruption grows to a peak. Well, then, the, then all of a sudden the depression happens and people are not as tolerant of public money being squandered like this. And, um, so there starts to be, uh, uh, pressure to investigate. Uh, Judge Samuel Seabury, a very respectable, very upright man, very uncorruptible uh, judge, is put in charge of this. 
the, the Seabury investigation, as it's called, um, takes over the news, takes over the government for about two, two and a half years, while FDR is governor in part because FDR wants to run for president. He can't be having scandals breaking out constantly in the biggest city in his state. So he's got some pressure to try to clean up the, the city. Of course, he's also got some pressure from the people in the city, uh, from the politicians, Tammany Hall, to not bust up their what the good thing they've got going on. So it's a very high-wire act that Roosevelt is in, and Polly is really caught in the middle, because if you want to know anything about political corruption or police corruption, she could tell you almost everything there is to know about it, or at least a good portion she could get you on the, on, on her on the way. And so she becomes caught up in the middle of it. She ends up going on the run. She leaves for Miami, uh, possibly spend some time in Cuba. But eventually she's out of money and has to come back. And that's around the time that she becomes most famous because she is caught up uh, in the scandals around uh, not just Jimmy Walker, uh, but there's a very famous case. of uh, If you're of a certain age, you might remember the name Judge Crater. Uh, he disappeared uh, in the middle of these municipal scandals, never to be seen again. And for years, people were on the hunt for him. Uh, people would think they were having sightings of Judge Crater across America, just like we might say we saw Bigfoot. Uh, and there is some rumor, uh, I don't have this uh, for sure, but that he may have died in Polly's uh, parlor. Uh, how is not exactly clear. And of course, we, we don't, maybe, maybe this new manuscript that I've discovered will have the answer to that. Uh, but she found herself over and over again right at the heart of anything, anything nasty happening in the political sphere. Chances were good uh, that she was there. Last he was the Forrest Gump of the Forrest Gump of Vice for a while there. Last couple of questions. I, I take it you met your husband at Amherst. I did. Yes. Now he seems to like writing books. Yeah, you mean because he has like twenty five of them? Yeah. In the, yes. <laughs> in the same time, listen, it's a source of some tension around here because I. The thing is about. Uh, writing biographies, uh, it's no way to make a living, for heaven's sakes. You get all the uh, penury of uh, bohemia and all the punctiliousness of, of being in the petty bourgeoisie, keeping account books, uh, and not a lot of cash. Uh, so part of what he keeps saying is, listen, you wrote these two great books. You won the Pulitzer Prize. Great. That's all wonderful. How about you write like a political thriller or something and that, that really sells? And uh, my problem is it's not easy to write fiction. I don't know how people do it. My husband writes business books. Uh, I don't know if it's easy or not. All I know is he's written a lot of them and people buy them. So I, there's a little bit of little bit of envy on my part uh, uh, to, with his speed and with his accuracy. Uh, so check in with me next year and either I will uh, have gotten a job doing something or I will be embarked on I don't know, writing writing a thriller. <laughs> or, or, or maybe I'll just retire and uh, putter around the garden. By the way, what's the correct way to pronounce your husband's last name? Uh, Bruce Tulgan, T-U-L-G-A-N. He is probably most famous for a book called It's Okay to Be the Boss, uh, which sells and sells and sells, even <laughs> though it's been out for about 10 years. Because apparently uh, people all want to be the boss, 
but then once they actually are in charge, it's it's awkward and it's it's not easy to do, and people don't really don't know how to be the boss. Uh, so it, it it's amazing how how much people still care about that book. For the last hour, we've been talking about a book called Madam, the biography of Polly Adler, icon of the Jazz Age. And our guest has been the author of that book, Debbie Applegate. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Couldn't have been more fun. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org. Thank mm-hmm. you.